God, uh, we long to meet with you, to hear your voice, and to speak to you, adore you, bring our requests to you, confess our sins to you. And we want to intercede on behalf of our church and behalf of our city. We pray that you will lead us, speak to us first from your word so that our prayers are winged by the truth of your word, informed by them, shaped by them, so that we may pray according to your will and be confident that our prayers will be answered by you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're in Psalm 39. To the choir master, to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in the presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me as I mused. The fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. For I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. In the book that uh, C.S. Lewis wrote uh, entitled A Grief of Birth, in a tongue-in-cheek manner, he asks this question. He says, what do people mean when they say, I am not afraid of God because I know he is good? Have they never even been to a dentist? Because he's saying, basically, when we visit a dentist, right, two factors uh, help us to endure the painful drilling of our cavities, right? One is knowing that it's only going to last a little while. Right. Two, it's uh, knowing that contrary to our instinct to flee pain, the dentist knows better than we do and that it's going to end up being good for us, uh, the drilling that he is doing. And, and these two s- simple observations translate to our spiritual life as well and help us endure far deeper troubles and afflictions when we remember that one, that it's going to only last a little while and two, that God's behind it sovereignly and he is good. Uh, and in Psalm 39, we find David in some kind of distress, and he goes from 
reflecting on his distress in verses 1 to 3, to a realization in verses 4 to 6, and finally to a request to God in verses 7 to 13. So reflection, realization, and a request. And the summary of the psalm is that we are to hope in the eternal Lord and not in this fleeting life. And so first, he goes into his reflection in verses 1 to 3. He writes that due to the presence of the wicked around him, he has resolved not to sin with his tongue. So he's experiencing some kind of affliction, and we don't know exactly what it is, probably all the better, because then it's universally applicable, what he's going through. Uh, and he really wants to cry out, out to God bitterly and, and complain to him, but he is concerned that in doing so, he might speak rashly and presumptuously and sin against God. Uh, and he's uh, particularly wary of uh, blaming God in the presence of the wicked, lest he fuel their unbelief in God and their disdain for God's people. Uh, so David notes in verses 2 to 3, I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me as I mused, the fire burned. So the expression, my heart became hot within me, is, this is similar to an expression that's used by Prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 29, where he says, If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. So it's describing that kind of burning passion, a zeal, and an irresistible urge to uh, say something. And uh, so after reflecting on his, uh, uh, his distress in verses 1 to 3 of Psalm 39, uh, he, goes to, he uh, comes to a realization in verses 4 to 6. And, uh, uh, in verse 4 of chapter 39, it says, O Lord, uh, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Uh, so in other words, he's saying, Oh Lord, when is this all going to end? Uh, show me that this will all be over soon, that my life is short. Uh, and at the end of his reflection, David realizes he already knows the answer to the question. And then so he starts to say in verses 5 to 6, Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Selah. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. Uh, uh, hand breath uh, is a measurement of four fingers, basically. It's, the, it's the, one of the smallest measures, units of measures in the Hebrew measurement system. Uh, and so when he compares his life to a hand breath, he's saying that our life is fleeting. It's, it's a mere breath. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. It's like a shadow, he says, like that shifts and disappears with the slightest movement of the sun. So then he concludes, in vain do the wicked prosper. In vain do people fret and grumble in this life. In vain do people invest countless energy and hours to heap up wealth that they will leave behind shortly. And so it's, it's not unlike, it's the way he describes it, not unlike a little child in the beach, at the beach who's, you know, with meticulous care, building a sandcastle, not knowing that in just a few moments uh, a wave is about to come and to, to wash it all away, right? Just these people who are heaping up wealth and investing in this life. And so with that, he comes to that realization that we should hope in the eternal Lord and not in this fleeting uh, life. Uh, this is a really helpful perspective when we're in the middle of distressing times and circumstances. Uh, I heard the story in 1852, uh, 
the English poet uh, Edward Fitzgerald wrote this, uh, or retold rather, this fable that's been around for a long time. It's called the Solomon Seal. He says that there's a sultan who asks King Solomon, you know, like, so if, because he had heard of his wisdom, asks him, hey, is there um, a saying that you know, you know, that will hold true uh, no matter what situation in life that will guide me? Uh, that can help me in life. And, and apparently Solomon responded, this is a probably made-up story, but he says, this too shall pass. Right? As you guys probably heard that. I've heard my neighbors use it. And uh, so that's helpful to remember, right? That means our, our difficult neighbors will pass, right? Yes. And uh, our, our, your illness will pass, right? Uh, it's the, your life will pass, right? David applies this particularly to distressing times, but it's equally applicable in times of joy and celebration, right? So when whatever we are enjoying, if it's, it's, if it's related to our temporal life here on earth, it will pass, right? The delicious food we enjoy will pass. 1 Corinthians 6.13 says, Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other, right? Uh, Sexual intercourse is one of the strongest pleasures of earth, but that too will pass, right? As Jesus says, right, there's no marriage in heaven, Mark 12, 25. So the earthly pleasures will be superseded by far superior eternal pleasures. So that phrase, this too shall pass, helps in both distressing times and uh, and in good times to help keep proper perspective on our attachment to earth. and then so after his reflection on his suffering and his realization of the fleeting nature of life, he comes to his final request to God in verses 7 to 13. He says, And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? And then he answers, My hope is in you. So he's saying, concluding that we are to hope in the eternal Lord and not in this fleeting life. And because God is the only worthy object of our hope, Right. And when our attention turns from this fleeting life to the eternal Lord, uh, that's when for David, the pressing issue no longer is his circumstances, his suffering, his distress, but his own sin. So he prays in verse 8, deliver me from all my transgressions, right? So, as, so he, and then as he realizes that it's God's disciplining him, afflicting him for his sins, he retreats once again to silence. And, uh, uh, and so this, this is a really helpful uh, truth to remember that even the distress and the affliction uh, come from God's sovereign hand, right? Not only is our suffering short-lived, it also comes from a sovereign God out of his providence. So David prays in verses 10 to 11, Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. And when you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. So David's affirming that God's disciplining him uh, as his father, as Hebrews 12, 6 says, the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Uh, and, uh, and God disciplined David in this case like a moth that consumes what is dear to him, right? This is kind of hard for us to relate to because we rarely deal with uh, moth infestations in our city context, but... But moths are pretty destructive, right? I mean, they, you know, lay larvae and, uh, and they consume all kinds of natural materials, right? It's like wool, like hair, leather, you know, any, anything natural, like they, they eat it and it's destroyed. And, uh, and so God's, it's, he says God consumes like a moth what is dear to him. And why does God consume what is dear to us, right, in when he's disciplining us, afflicting us? And, and I think it's he loosens 
our desperate grip on this world when He consumes what is dear to us, right? Things of this world that are dear to us, when He consumes it, He loses our grip on earth and, and draws us near to Him, makes us cling to Him instead of clinging uh, to this world. And, uh, and so uh, because of that, David's teaching is we are to hope in the eternal Lord and not in this fleeting life. And, and with that, he comes to this conclusion in verse 13, O Lord, I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. He says all his fathers of faith, all the people that preceded him were sojourners. And this is in spite of the fact that he's already in the promised land, right? David is the one that conquers Jerusalem. He's in the promised land. Yet he says he is a sojourner because I think he realizes that all of us, our ultimate home is with the Lord in heaven. And therefore, all, all the people of God who are on earth are still sojourners. And a lot of the New Testament authors grab hold of this idea and use it. And, uh, and, and, and as he uh, hopes in the Lord, uh, he asks God to pardon his sins because he realizes that's what's keeping him from his full enjoyment of the presence of God. Verse 13, look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Um, obviously, David's not asking God to go away and not to deal with him, but he's asking God to look away from him in judgment, uh, from condemnation. And, uh, uh, and, and this is true for all of us, right? If, we, if God were to count and mark all our iniquities, no one, none of us can stand, right? Uh, yet, uh, yet, because no one can escape God's all-seeing eyes. Uh, and, and that's why, right, there's a, uh, uh, as Christians who have experienced the ultimate redemption of God in Christ, we have a better hope than even David knew. I mean, he knew prophetically of what, what God would do, but he can't really in good conscience ask God to look away from him because God's a just judge. But God can look away from him. God can forgive him. God can pardon him because he looks ahead to Jesus, his son, who lives a perfect life and dies for our sins and rises again so that his righteousness is imputed to us. And so that, as it says in Isaiah and other parts, God does not remember his sins against us. And, I mean, God's not forgetful. He doesn't, it's not that he forgets our sins, but he chooses not to remember our sins against us, meaning he doesn't count it against us. And, and so David's prayer becomes a reality for us. God looks away from us, from judgment, and comes to us, looks to us in grace uh, and love only. Uh, and, uh, and, and for that reason, we have even more hope than David to place our hope in him, more reason than David to place our hope in him and not in this fleeting life.